All right, everybody awake? Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. No. Okay. It is good to be back, and boy, I've enjoyed the fellowship time over lunch. It gave us a chance to really get to talk to a lot of you, meet some new brothers and sisters in Christ, and reacquaint ourselves with many that we already know. And uh, so we are so, feel so blessed to be back here. And again, we just love this church. I hope you will go to see the ark. You need to go. And that is a wonderful trip. And I would invite you to stop by our house, but I don't know how we, I don't have many of you going, so I don't know if Debbie could feed them all. But we do invite people all the time to come and stay with us. And since we've moved to James, uh, from Jamestown in 22 years, I'm not sure if we had a handful of people visit us from other churches, we'd invite them to. But since we've been in Lexington, we get a visitor almost every month, it seems like, from all over the country because we, we invite people to come stay with us and they take us up because we're only 45 minutes from the ark. But we love that. We really do. So, well, I'm going to jump right in, turn to Genesis chapter 3, if you would, and verse 8. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, and if you would with me again today, if you would stand in honor of the Word of God, if you're able to physically do that as we read verse 8, and I'll read down through verse 13. Now, the title, if I had a title this morning, was the whole theme this weekend has been Partners in Paradise, and we've done partner, the Portrait of Paradise, Partners with Purpose. We've done all these different uh, themes, partners in perversion this morning. But this afternoon, we're going to talk about partners in pardon. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, and I'll go down through verse 13. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Once again, I'd ask you to hold hands with those beside you. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so thankful for your word. Lord, it is a living word to us. And Lord, you give us the true story of the world in your word. Father, I pray again this afternoon, Father, that we have been fed physically, that we would be fed spiritually. And I pray, God, that, Father, you would speak to our hearts. And I pray, God, that you'd encourage all of us in the word of God as we Look at uh, the grace of God through these passages. And so, Father, we give this time to you and pray you be glorified in all that's said and all that's done in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, and you, can set, you may be seated. Well, this morning I share with you six ways uh, that sin perverted man. Sin caused man to be cut off from man, social alienation. Sin caused man to be cut off from God, spiritual alienation. I said sin caused man to be cut off from himself, psychological alienation. We talked about how sin caused gender roles to be cursed, familial alienation, and sin caused the ground to be cursed, vocational alienation, and sin caused man uh, to be cut off from nature, creational alienation. Genesis chapter 3 is a chapter, certainly a chapter about sin. There's probably no other chapter in the Bible that tells us more about sin. I would ask you here today, do you believe in such a thing as sin? And many, if I would ask that question all around the United States today and around the world, they would say they do not. 
all of the problems with man, poverty, abuse, cruelty, drunkenness, divorce, gender confusion, transgender confusion, homosexuality, lying, stealing, and the problems in our nation and the problems in the world are all due, and I try to make this point clear this morning to one thing, and that's sin. It's all due to sin. It's not a popular topic to talk about sin in the church even today. Love is, prosperity theology is, but sin not so much. C.M. Joyd was a British philosopher and an atheist. He was a member of what's called the Brains Trust. He lived in the early 20th century. He was an atheist but came to faith later in his life. And at the very end of his life, he wrote a book called The Recovery of Belief. In it, he said a very fascinating thing. He said, it's because we rejected the doctrine of original sin that we on the left were always being disillusioned by the behavior of both the people and the nations and the politicians and by the recurrent fact of war. Before coming to faith, he believed that man's problems were due to a lack of education. He believed that man's problems were due to the right social politics and other things that man can change in him of himself. But he realized near the end of his life that because he didn't believe in the doctrine of original sin, that all of man's social policies didn't and will not work. Why? Because he didn't have the Bible's understanding of original sin, the depravity of man. Another writer, another man by the name of Carl Menninger, a very, very mainstream psychiatrist who was a member of the Aspen Institute of Humanistic Studies, wrote a book in 1970s that really shocked a lot of people. And he called it Whatever Became of Sin. I assume that he came to faith in Christ when he wrote this book, but he was a humanist, a non-believer. But in this book, he starts out like this. He calls for revival of the conscious sense of guilt and repentance. To paraphrase, he says, in short, I call for revival of sin. What would be the good of that, you ask? Why do we need more breast beaters? Why not a no-fault theology? No one to blame. Just things happen, alas. Here's why. The assumption that there is sin implies both a possibility and an obligation for intervention. We want to help ourselves and others. Hence, sin is the only hopeful view. When evil appears around us and no one is responsible, no one is guilty, no moral questions are asked, then there is short, in short, nothing to do. So we sink to despairing hopelessness. Therefore, the consequence of my proposal for revival of the consciousness of sin would not be more depression, but much less. But I want you to notice a statement. It kind of jumped out to me when I was reading this. He said, the assumption that there is sin implies both a possibility and an obligation for intervention. And I thought, wow, possibility and obligations. Here's what he means, I believe. If someone says, I don't believe in sin, then two important things are true. You have no right to intervene. That is, you have no right to stop somebody from doing what they feel is right to do regardless of how you might feel about it. For example, a husband is abusing his wife. You say, stop it. You can't do that. That's wrong. And you say that to them and they say back to you, I don't care what you think. You have no right to tell me what is right or what is wrong. You're really saying that what they're doing is sin. But if you don't believe in sin, then you would have no right to intervene. 
Also, if you don't believe in sin, then you have no possibility of intervention. If you say that things just happen, or this is just because of my genetic code, or this is evolutionary, then really you have no hope. There's no hope for man. Minager says very powerfully, if there is no such thing as sin, then we have neither the right to intervene nor really even the power to intervene. If things just happen because they happen, if there is no such thing as sin, you have neither the right nor the possibility to change anything. Now, there's many in our country today that absolutely believe that. And that's why we have the problems that we have. This thinking is, folks, this is where victimhood comes from. If there is no such thing as sin, you have neither the right nor possibility of changing anything. If you don't believe in sin, you see Adam as a poor victim of the woman and God who gave her to him. If you don't believe in sin. The modern version goes more like this. God, you're responsible for my situation that has left me so susceptible to sin. My upbringing, my abuse, my horrible parents and their influence on me. And the list could go on and on. I'm just a victim. It's a victim mentality. This is where many people live their lives today. Believing they have no sin and are just victims. It's no wonder there's rampant depression and rampant suicide. There's no hope. People have no hope. That's why Minager says if we begin to look around and say these things are sin, this is sin, suddenly we get less depressed. Suddenly, as a sign says over here that you need to post all around the city, there's hope. You have the possibility of change if you believe what you're doing is sin, and you also have the right to intervene into other people's lives and help them change if what they're doing is sin. But as much as Genesis chapter 3 is a chapter that tells us a lot about sin, that paradise was lost, and that depravity and death became the lot of humanity, it also is a chapter that is laced with the grace of God. And I want to show you that this afternoon as we kind of close out this weekend. We see partners really in this chapter, partners with hope, partners with pardon. So as we close out, I want to share with you the many ways we see God's grace woven through this chapter that gives every one of us hope. And folks, as we said, hope changes everything. So first we see, number one, God's grace shown in his presence. God's grace shown in his presence. In verse 8 it says, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees, of the garden, and the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? I just want to say, folks, what marvelous grace God displays when after man disobeys him and sins, he returns into the wreckage of man's sin to have a conversation with man. That is marvelous grace. Listen, folks, this is not how we would normally respond to someone who sinned against us to someone who did us wrong, we might say, okay, that's fine. Go your way, but forget you. I don't ever want to see you again. I don't ever want to talk to you again. More or less, have a conversation with you. But a perfect and holy God would have every right to do that, to forsake us, but instead he comes into the sinful mess and he offers grace. So let me emphasize that no matter... Today, what sin you have committed, you can come here, whatever sin you've committed, that God through his spirit, folks, I just want to say God through his spirit 
is here to have a conversation with you. Just like he came in the garden. He's come today, wherever you're sitting in your seat, whatever you're going through today, God, through his spirit, is ready to have a conversation with you. I don't, that blows me away. I, I think, wow, what grace. If I stopped right there, that would be enough, amen? That God just desires to have a conversation with sinful man. But not only was God's grace shown through his presence after man's sin, but also God's grace was shown in the curse on the serpent and Satan. Look at verse 14 and 15. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all the cattle, and above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now we see from these verses that the curse has two objects. If we look at verse 14 and 15 that I read. There's a curse upon the serpent, and there's also a curse upon Satan who controls the serpent. So look at the serpent's curse for a second. This verse is not saying this is when the serpent lost its legs and start crawling on its belly. This verse is really, if you want to go back and you think about it, it's very, it's very uh, similar to where God talks about the rainbow in Genesis 9, chapter 9 and verse 13. He said, I do set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a token of covenant between me and the earth. This verse is not saying this is when we started having rainbows. But from this point on, the rainbow will be a sign of God's grace. It'll be a symbol. The same is true of the curse against the serpent. It doesn't mean from now on you'll crawl on your belly, but from now on you will crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust. Eating dust is a sign of judgment. Even today we say, eat my dust. You know, somebody could be running in a race and he's Looking at the finish line, he's 50 yards to the finish line, and there's somebody 50 yards behind him, and he turns around and says, eat my dust. You know, that's a common saying. Here's what this means. What he's saying is, when you see this serpent crawling on the ground, it's a sign of defeat and frustration. He says, there will be seed of the serpent in verse 15. Who are the seed of the serpent? The seed of the serpent are all the people like the serpent, like Satan, who try to put themselves in the place of God. One commentator aptly says this. He says, from now on, I want you to see whenever you see a serpent, that's a sign of my curse and my judgment on anybody who tries to put themselves in the place of God. Put themselves on the throne of God. You will eat dust all your life. You'll be frustrated all your life. You will be empty all your life. And that is the curse upon the serpent. But we see the curse also upon Satan in verse 15, and I'll put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, I mentioned this morning that when I mentioned this verse that we have this verse is called the proto-gospel. Since this is such an astounding gospel prophecy where God's curse becomes a word of grace, let me just share a little bit more about it this afternoon for just a moment. The woman's offspring called... Her seed refers to Christ, of course, who will crush Satan's head. This has always been the church's position until recently or modern biblical criticism, which says it has nothing to do with that, but it's a statement more that there would be perpetual conflict between humanity and the snake population. 
in which man would ultimately be victorious. But Hebrew scholar Jack Collins examined every use of the word seed when it means offspring and found that when the word is in singular, as it is in this verse, it always denotes a specific descendant, and when it is an individual, the pronoun will always be masculine. This understanding of seed confirmed by the apostle Paul in Galatians 3.16 when he says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, and here it is, which is Christ. So here in Genesis 3.15, we have the prophecy of the cross when Satan would strike the hill of Christ, that is, his suffering on the cross, but Christ would strike the head of Satan through his death and glorious resurrection. It's an amazing thing that we see the paradise lost by man sinning But God's grace is shown to us by the curse upon Satan that the second Adam, Jesus Christ, will crush Satan by his great work on the cross. And Jesus understood this, of course. In John 3, 14 and 15, he said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The command to look upon the uplifted serpent in Numbers 21 and verse 9 was a foreshadowing of the looking up to the crucified Christ for our salvation. But there's more grace to see. As I said, this whole chapter is laced with the grace of God. Thirdly, we see God's grace shown in the curse to woman. In the curse to woman. We see God's grace continue in the judgments of woman through childbearing and her marriage. Look at verse 16 in the beginning of the verse. It says, Unto the woman he said, I'll greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception, and sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. God created woman to find joy and pleasure in motherhood. But now she would experience pain in one of the most joyous parts of her life, bearing children. And her pain was not limited to the physical, but also the word pain means painful toil. It refers to the emotional as well as the physical. Mothering would now be a source of painful labor. But also with marriage, if you look at the last part of that verse, it says, In thy desires, I said this morning, went over this, shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Where the woman was created to submit and follow her husband, she would now desire to control her husband. Not only that, but her desire to lead would fail since God created her husband to be a more of a tyrant and dominate her. And what God created to be the most blessed parts of a woman's existence, bearing children and marriage to man, she would experience the painful consequences of her rebellion. Now, you might say, okay, I see that, but where's the grace? Where's the grace in these curses? And folks, listen, God's grace shines through as marriage alone will never, ever give woman all she desires. And childbearing alone now will never, ever give woman all she desires in motherhood. This is grace since it will drive her seeking soul to the only one who can truly satisfy her soul, that is God himself. Now, motherhood doesn't please her. Marriage will never ultimately please her. She will be looking to get an answer, the search of her soul, and that will lead her to the grace of God. 
But also God's grace is shown in the curse to man. We see that in verse 17. It says, unto Adam, he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of the wife, thy wife, and has eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it was thou taken. For dust thou art, and into dust thou shalt return. Because Adam hearkened, now that word hearken is an interesting word. It's an idiom which actually means to obey. He obeyed the voice of his wife. He abdicated his God-given headship. Because he did that, God cursed not man's, I said this morning's work, but he cursed the ground. The ground from which there had been a source of joy that Adam found significance and purpose from cultivating now became a source of ongoing pain to him. And this curse upon the ground was irrevocable. Nothing could change it, no repentance, nothing would remove the curse upon the ground. Man's labor upon the earth would become futile, even as I said this morning. It would become very, very futile, and the only thing that could ever stop it would be death. But even God's grace shines brightly in man's curse too. Because apart from God... None of man's work, none of man's achievements would ever fully satisfy him. No matter if he's a teacher, no matter if he's a farmer, an engineer, a doctor, sports superstar, no matter if he's rich, nothing would truly satisfy his soul now but God and God alone. All of man's work would be covered with thorns and thistles and it would be futile. Solomon reminds us of this futility in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 3 and 4 when he says, What profit hath a man of all his labor which he hath taken under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. It comes and it goes, it comes and it goes, and it comes and it goes. It's futility. But like woman, nothing would satisfy man's soul but God. And folks, this is grace, O man, as he's driven to search for what only God can give him, rest in Jesus Christ. Next, we see God's grace shine through God's grace being shown in Adam naming woman. Look at verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Adam named his wife Eve, which means life, or it means life giver, because she would become the mother of It says, of all the living. Adam named her mother of all the living because he understood the significance of God's word spoken to his wife. He understood and believed by faith that one of her offspring would crush the head of Satan. Adam's declaration was a shout of hope in naming of woman. In naming his wife, he was celebrating the survival of the human race and victory over death. The reformer, Philip Melanchon, called Eve the seal of grace. But we also see God's grace shown in the clothing of man and woman. Look at verse 21. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. I love what Scottish preacher Marcus Dodd says about this verse. 
He said it's to be remarked that the clothing which God provided was itself different from what men had thought of. Adam took leaves from an inanimate, unfeeling tree. God deprived an animal of life that the shame of his creature might be relieved. This was the last thing Adam would have thought of doing. To us, life is cheap and death familiar, but Adam recognized death as a punishment for sin. And he had to learn that sin could not be covered by a bunch of leaves snatched from a bush as he passed by, but only by pain and by blood. Sin cannot be atoned for by any mechanical action, nor without expenditure of feeling. Suffering must ever follow wrongdoing. Adam and Eve would never have perceived, as he said, that only through the shedding of blood could sin be covered. God's provision of garments, of animal skins, was an act of grace and a realization that only God's grace could cover their sins and only through the shedding of blood. I think we see this pictured in Matthew twenty-two eleven in the parable of the wedding banquet where Jesus says, when the king came to see the guest, he saw there a man which had no wedding garment on. Also the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, 22, which is very familiar to us, and in verse 22, he says, But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best, what, robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Unfortunately, man throughout the ages, as I said this morning, has tried to cover up his sin by his own futile works, which will never save him. God's action, of course, was a foreshadowing of the ultimate sovereign provision of sin, God's Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. In this passage on the wedding feast and, and his bride, we read in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 8, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the linen is the righteousness of the saints. Lastly, I want to share with you today, and I, this is so marvelous to look through this chapter and see all these places of grace. God's grace is shown through their exile from the garden. You may have never thought about this, but look with me at verse 22 through 24. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed at the east of the garden of Eden a cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Even though Adam and Eve's bodies were physically alive, they were spiritually dead. Ken Hughes says, as residents of the garden, they could have eaten of the tree of life and perpetuated their body and bodily existence indefinitely. Thus, the garden would have become hell on earth, populated with the undying dead, forever living and forever dead. Adam and Eve were exiled forever from the garden. And even through, though this appears very terrible in reading it, it's actually an act of grace by God. Since they had breathed the air of God's presence in the garden, they would now be short of spiritual breath and longing for that spiritual breath once again. Therefore, they'll never be able to get enough of God. The whole Bible Listen, folks, from the Garden of Eden until the holy city pictured in Revelations 21 and 22, 
are a story of God's grace. For Adam and Eve and us, who with them are partners in perversion, there is no going back to the garden, but through Christ, the second Adam. These realities lay ahead of us as seen in several excerpts from the book of Revelation, and I want to read them to you in closing here this afternoon. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 2 and 3. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Verse 22, the same chapter. And I saw no temple therein, and for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. Then chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God of the Lamb. And in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manners of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever, all of mankind who inherited the sin of Adam and Eve, who are partners in perversion, could now be pardoned through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Now, I've said this many times last night and even this morning. It's only in the scriptures that I hold in my hand that we can find the true story of the world. And that story is the most beautiful story that we could ever find because it's a story of God's grace shown to us in the beautiful person of Jesus Christ. It's been a joy to share this weekend, and there's no better way I think I could end than today, and I wasn't very long, in talking about the beautiful, wonderful grace of God. We could never talk about it too much. We could never meditate on it on it too much. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for your marvelous grace. I thank you, Lord, that even in our sin, Father, you come, even as you did to Adam, you come to have a conversation with us. And Father, I'm, I'm so thankful that even as a child of God, even when I sin, you come to have a conversation with me, not to condemn me, but to take me to Mount Calvary, to take me to the cross, that I would not be in bondage to that sin, that I could have freedom from that sin. Because we know, Father, even as you said in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there is therefore no condemnation in Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you and praise you, Lord, that you do desire for us Father, to be in an intimate relationship with you. Father, I thank you, even as Paul thanked you 
in, in Ephesians chapter 1 that we are forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ, that we're accepted in the beloved, that we're adopted children of God, or that we have the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. Father, I thank you that you invite us to come boldly to your throne. I thank you, Father, for your marvelous grace. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this afternoon, Lord, that if there's still some here today that, Father, are in bondage of sin. Lord, they're overtaken by the burdens they're carrying, the weariness of this life. I pray, God, that they would come to you. And, Father, you would rescue them. They would allow you to rescue them from these burdens. And, Father, that they would experience afresh the grace of God. And, Father, I do pray if there's someone here today that does not know Jesus Christ, Father, I pray you would draw them to yourself and you would gloriously save them. We thank you and praise you. Lord, I I thank you for this church. Lord, I thank you for the marvelous, wonderful work you are doing in this church. It thrills my heart to come back and see the answers to many prayers. And we thank you. And I pray, God, this church would continue to be a lighthouse in this city, in this county, the grace of God through Jesus Christ. I pray, God, for your continued anointing upon it. I pray for all the deacons. I pray for all the leaders in the church. I pray for Pastor Josh and Kim, that you would hedge about and protect them from the enemy. Lord, I pray for Matt and Jenny, and Lord, I pray for Austin and Holly and all the leadership. Father, we pray for them. I pray for these brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I pray, God, that you would just help them to experience your presence really close. We pray for revival. God, that we might truly God, walk in a way that would be totally pleasing and glorifying to you. So we love you, and we praise you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.